Morning, church. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 24, and I'll be reading 1 through 14. And I will be reading out of the King James, so it won't be the same as the ESV up on the overhead. So a little sidebar to this, uh, I was thinking a couple of days ago after my study in the morning of what we've been through this past year, the trauma, the sicknesses, the death, the many terrible things that have happened within our own body here. Jared and his terrible motorcycle accident, and Amanda and the loss of Levi, and we have some current people that are under treatment for cancer, um, and then we have Don MacArthur who's who's dealing with an ongoing medical from one day to the next. Um, so I, I was kind of getting a little despondent after thinking about all the things we've been through and, and looking at the world and the world condition, you know, looking at uh, that verse in Revelation where it talks about in the last days there will be rumors of wars, wars in various places, there will be pestilence, famine, the waxing of many growing cold, and, you know, I was just thinking about that. Gosh, we got, we got wars on every continent of the earth right now. We just came out of a major pestilence, and who knows what's around the corner for us. Uh, we've got major famines in Africa, and we have famines in, in war-torn areas, previously like uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and uh, uh, there was areas in Indonesia, and, and even China had, had famines, along with North Korea. So. It's been a real difficult year, and it's hard to not get too despondent when you're thinking about all that's going around us. So I was thinking, you know, where, where am I going to get a little bit of respite from all of this? So I was thinking of a, um, of a little mini story. It's two minutes long, if you'll bear with me. Um, some of you have probably heard or read this story. And uh, Jackie, our beloved pastor, would say, well, I'm going to read it anyway. So, so the title of it is, You're Not Home Yet. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for years, and they were returning to New York to retire. They had no pension, no he their health was broken, and they were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid much attention to them. They, uh, they had much fanfare and accompanied the president's entourage with passengers trying to catch a glimpse of the great man. As the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these many years and have no one care a thing about us? Here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody just makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. I can't help it, he says. It doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, when the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president, and the mayor, and other dignitaries were there. The, par the papers were full of the president's arrival, but no one noticed this missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the East Guide, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. 
That night, the man's spirit broke, and he said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. And his wife replied, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? A short time later, he came out of the bedroom, and now his face was completely different. His wife asked, dear, what happened? The Lord settled it with me. He said, I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. So that is our hope. All the trials and tribulations that we faced in 22 and the things that are going to come to us in 23, we have to keep in mind that we're not home yet. So in the last days, there will be many tribulations, and we're part of that. But we have something that the unsaved do not have. We have hope. Okay, chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. That shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, and all these things must come to pass. By the, but the end is not there yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, together and worship before you, Lord. We have many things to to lift up to you throughout this next year, Father. We just pray that you would carry your saints through the difficulties. We're thankful for the many blessings that you restore upon us. For some of our lives, you have restored what the locusts have eaten, and we're thankful for that, Father. We pray for the unsaved. We pray that we will be a light and we'll be able to plant seed in this world and that others may come to you, Father. For that is our heart's will, Lord, of the Great Commission, that we bring more into the kingdom until that day. Thank you so much for this congregation, Lord. We just pray that you would hold them in your hand. Help us to gather together as a body. Strengthen us as a whole, Lord, that we may minister to one another and that our church will continue to grow and abound in your love, mercy, and your kindness, Father. We pray for Jackie this morning that your Holy Spirit would come through and prop him up and give your word to the congregation that it may 
and those out there beyond this premises and that your word would touch the hearts of many and many will come to a saving grace through you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first day, 2023, we're going to start Matthew 24. Are you ready? <laughs> there are certain things that, uh, what I call them, questions, uh, unanswered questions. I don't know if there's answers to them. But I'm going to give you all one to ponder. It's, we're going to be in Matthew 24 for a while, so don't get excited. Uh, I know I'm planning to go to verse 14, but I'm not making any promises about that either. Uh, I want you to do this. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to meditate on that question and read Matthew 24. Um, throughout the week and for the next couple of weeks, because we'll be there, like I said, for a while. And really, if we want to, to read the whole pericope, the <clears throat> section of scripture that goes together, really, you, you do 23 through 25, because all of those things are happening in the same moments. And, uh, and then ask yourself this question. This question keeps this preacher up at night. It is this. How did 12 men turn the world upside down and 2.2 billion can't? Now, you could say that 2.2 billion is inflated. That's possible. I guarantee it's more than 12. <laughs> right? 2.2 billion is, uh, how do I come up with that number? I just Google it. How many professing Christians globally around the world, 2.2 billion. <clears throat> the population of the world, where are we at? Somewhere around 8 billion now? I think something like that. So we recognize that there were 12 men full of the Holy Spirit who in their time are going to reach their world, the whole world they were in. The entire Roman Empire, which was the known world for them. Our world is bigger, right? So there's, there's more for us. But for them, they reached their entire world with the gospel in perilous times. Right? And it was proclaimed of those 12 men, look at these guys, they have turned the world upside down. So, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, i just asking, sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to ask this question. Think about the answer to that question. What, what is the answer? How could 12 be so effective? 2.2 billion less effective, or seemingly so. And, and then if they're not less effective, then maybe let's think about where those victories are. 
The scripture begins with us today with this simple phrase, Jesus left the temple and was going away. It is, in terms of language, something maybe most of us wouldn't pick up on, but there is a double statement of leaving. And it's a big deal. And in order for us to understand <coughs> why it's a big deal, we, we need to back up and just, we're just going to read the last section of chapter 23. Well, chapter 23, Mark did a great job. Chapter 23, there's seven woes. The Son of God is laying out the woe, his judgment. If you, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to say his judgment on the nation of Israel. Primarily on the leadership, scribes and Pharisees, right? You guys remember the, the section that you went through uh, a week ago, just, uh, just prior to Christmas. Beginning in verse 29 of Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you built the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, and you say... If we, had, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brutal vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you. Now this is Jesus speaking, right? He says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you, it's personal, right? Who's he, who's he speaking to? He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, right? <clears throat> on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And then he tells us who that last one is. Because, listen, if you guys search through the annals for Zechariah, Berechiah, you won't find him. Because he's not a prophet we know of. But he is one that Jesus knew of. Look how Jesus describes Zechariah of Berechiah. You murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, this same group of scribes and Pharisees who are plotting the murder of Jesus, right? We're aware. We don't really think this is the first time they went off the rails, do we? Do you think ever before there was ever a righteous man who maybe in their midst told them, hey, what you guys are doing is wrong? The Bible tells us that the Lord does not forget your work of love. Even though the people around you may not <coughs> acknowledge what you're doing, the Lord knows your name. So the Lord says, Zechariah Berechai, whom you murdered, I know you did it. You murdered him between the sanctuary and the altar. Now I would say right about now, those guys are looking around going, who told him? How could he even know that name, Zechariah Berechiah? Zechariah Berechiah is not one of, it's not Zechariah the prophet. You're, this is not a, a prophet of old. 
And so I would assert that this is someone that this group of men murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And then he says, he declares judgment. I don't want you to miss this because it matters for the next chapter. <clears throat> he declares judgment. Truly I say to you, all these things, what things? All the things he's been declaring in chapter 23. Woe to you. Woe to you. Well, it'd be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than for you. You guys remember all that, right? He says, all of these things will come upon who? This, the generation he's talking to, right? The generation he's talking to. In case we miss it, he's going to develop it a little further in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. The rebellion of Jerusalem is <coughs> complete in this moment. And we're going to see it in verse 1 of chapter 24. So he says in verse 38, this is vital. See then whose house? Where's Jesus at? He's in the temple. Now earlier in chapter 21, if you remember, Jesus came down to the shouts of, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember? And they laid down their palm fronds and they declared the messianic psalms, the enthronement psalms. The king has come and he comes into the temple and what does he do? He cleanses the temple and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of right. And he cleanses it all, right? He washes away all that was wrong and he spends the next chapters from 21 to this point in 23, in essence, defending his right to cleanse the temple. The scriptures, the Old Testament said that the day would happen when the glory of God would return to the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, we're going to read it in a, in a little while, but in the book of Ezekiel, we see the glory of God leave the temple. Now, this is Jackie's assertion. You ride with me. <clears throat> Tell me what you think when you search the scripture. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple, departs, goes out the eastern gate, over the Mount of Olives, and departs. And you see that glory of God show up before Ezekiel. The Lord goes all the way out to the remnant and says, hey, I'm with you guys and I'm going to bring you back. But there's never a moment like there was at the building of the temple where the glory of God sits enthroned in the next temple. And there's a lot of judgment from the prophets in the Old Testament about the wicked forms of worship that are taking place in the temple. And the Lord says, what are you guys doing? This is, this is all messed up. And you have these prophets that talk about a day when the glory of the Lord is going to come and cleanse the temple. And here Jesus has just walked in. 
God in the flesh. And he cleanses the temple and he defends his right to have done so. And he answers their questions. But ultimately, he's rejected. And he declares judgment in 23. And he says in in chapter 23, in this judgment, all these things I'm talking about in chapter 23 are going to come on this generation. The guys he's talking to, right? All the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah, Barakiah, judgment day will come. Judgment day will come. Your house is desolate. Your house, I'm not in your house anymore. And I tell you, you will not see me again. Don't miss this. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The multitude who proclaimed that as Jesus was coming in, who do you think are the ones when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and he rehearses the history of the people and the promise of Joel, <clears throat> which, by the way, is a, is a promise of proclamation before a day of the Lord, judgment. But as he, he lays that thing out, who are the people who were smitten to their heart and they come and they, thanks, you know, I'm going to, I would have picked up the one on the floor, but I look stupid when I bend over. <clears throat> so, <coughs> anyway, so you have this, this, uh, foreshadowing this going on that we don't want to miss we don't want to miss so all those who were proclaiming blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord i believe that's the three thousand souls that are added the five thousand souls that are added the the myriad of jews especially in the beginning until chapter 10 of acts right that are going to come <clears throat> in faith in christ jesus says you won't see me again until you say Blessed is he until you are acknowledging me as Messiah. And then 24. Remember, there's no chapter breaks. Then Jesus left the temple and went away. And I think it's important for us not to miss, not to miss that because what's happened is The house, the temple, has been abandoned by the glory of God. The place that Jesus had hoped to preserve, at least in a sense, is a house of prayer that we spoke of in Matthew 21. And perhaps the picture of the cursing of the fig tree in Matthew 21, right? The fruitless fig tree, (laughs) which was symbolically destroyed. But we can't miss the link in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 10, verse 18, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. 
And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes. And they went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So he's seeing this vision of the glory of God leaving, <clears throat> mounting his throne chariot that's carried by the four cherubim. If you did Ezekiel with this, you'll be familiar with that. If you haven't, all of Ezekiel is online. Check it out. And then Ezekiel 11, verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain on the east side. Now, if you've been with us to Israel, you know that mountain. If you read Matthew 24, verse 1, you also know that mountain. He left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them and said to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone on another that won't be thrown down. Jesus leaves. <coughs> Verse 3, Matthew 24. And as he sat on the Mount of... In Ezekiel 10 and 11, the glory of the Lord departed the temple, went out the eastern gate, the golden gate. If you've been to Israel, it's a sealed gate that you can't, you can't walk through. And right on the other side of that is the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've ever been to Israel before, if you haven't, I would encourage you to come with us. We're going to go in 24. April of 24, we are planning an Israel trip. You are, of course, welcome to come with us. Should the Lord tarry, he has not returned yet. We will go see broken Israel and look forward to the New Jerusalem later. But <clears throat> when we go and we stand on the Temple Mount and we look out the Eastern Gate, you will see the Mount of Olives. And you should remember, this is the same route the glory of God took in the throne chariot of God in Ezekiel. And he paused on the Mount of Olives. Do you think Jesus did all this on accident? Do you think that Jesus walked out the Golden Gate, down to the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, stopped, turned around, and could see the entire Temple Mount? Every picture you've ever seen... <coughs> excuse me, modern picture today of the Temple Mount where you see the Dome of the Rock. You guys know the, familiar with the picture, it's usually a, a wide angle shot. That's taken from the Mount of Olives. So you sit on the Mount of Olives, Jesus could go up on the Mount of Olives, sit and look. And the disciples are going to come to him and they're like, man, look at that temple. Isn't it cool? Look at how amazing that temple is. And all the while, I think, the Lord wants to bring their remembrance to Ezekiel. To remember the, to remember the story of Ezekiel when the glory of God had left. And so the Lord makes this proclamation. Now, <clears throat> 
usually what happens in at Calvary chapels, we're all uh, pre-mill, pre-trib. That's, this, is, this is who we are as Calvary Chapel. And in an effort to be pre-mill and pre-trib, we tend to want to ignore everything that, or some things that we probably shouldn't ignore. And one of those is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. We don't get to ignore it. It's real. It happened. Jesus prophesied about it. The church escaped as a result of Jesus' prophecy of it. And part of Matthew 24, at least, and probably more than a part of Matthew 24, (coughs) but a big chunk of Matthew 24 is about that event. Now, if you have come with us on on our journeys through the the prophets. Uh, we're, we're currently in Obadiah. We'll finish Obadiah Wednesday. Um, so we're almost done with all the prophets in the Old Testament. We'll start over in the Old Testament again on, on Wednesdays. It will have only took me something like 14 years to go through the Old Testament. So, but, but when we finish, one of the things you're going to hear me say, and I'm going to point out here in Matthew 24, is the pattern... And the pattern, the schematic, is prophetic. And I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking maybe about the same thing as dual prophecy, although I do believe dual prophecy exists. Unfortunately, you and I don't get to pick it. <clears throat> I don't know how to govern it otherwise, right? If everything can be a double prophecy, then do we, how do we know anything's ever fulfilled? But I know certain things, right? Like we have Isaiah 7, ask me for a sign. And, and uh, you guys know King, is it Ahab? It's not Ahab. It doesn't matter. You guys look it up, Isaiah 7. Unto, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Before that child knows right from wrong the promise of the deliverance of these two kingdoms you're afraid of, <clears throat> the Lord will have delivered you. Now, we know that has a dual fulfillment, right? Because it had a local fulfillment in their time. And then Matthew says that was talking about Jesus, right? A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> and so whether or not near and far, there's, there's, I don't want to confuse you more than I'm trying to confuse you right now. But it has to be governed by something. Matthew said it, so I believe it. Does it make sense? Matthew's going to say, out of Egypt I have called my son, and that referred to the Christ. But we go back to the prophet, and the prophet says that of the nation of Israel. How do I know that's dual fulfillment? Because Matthew said it. Okay? So our ideas of dual fulfillment have to be governed by something, otherwise... Everything will be continual. But I do think there is a point of pattern being prophecy. Do you guys know how many times you're going to see the four horsemen of the apocalypse if you study the whole Bible? How many times when the Lord brings judgment is he going to use war, pestilence, and famine? You're going to see it over and over and over, and if you've heard me talk about this in Daniel, <coughs> see, we're not even going to make it to chapter 3. 
or to verse 3. If you've heard me talk about Daniel chapter 2, it's just important for us to kind of kind of lay some of these ideas out. It's important for us to know in Daniel chapter 2, you have the head of gold, chest of silver, uh, uh, body of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay. Okay, you guys remember the one I'm talking about? And you have four kingdoms. And under the fourth kingdom, you have the coming of Messiah, a rock not cut out with hands, comes out of the heavens, strikes the kingdoms of men, destroys them. But we know there's been multiple kingdoms of men, right? That wasn't the last of the kingdoms of men. <laughs> but what do all the kingdoms of men do? They fail just like the head of silver, the chest of, or the head of gold, chest of silver, right? One kingdom passes to the next kingdom passes because there's only one eternal kingdom. What's the one eternal kingdom? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, who Jesus Christ came. And in a sense, that kingdom is already and not yet. Right? I mean, Jesus established the kingdom. In Matthew 29, he says, how much authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? So does that mean there's other authority somewhere else? So he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and... But then he's seated on a throne in heaven. And we know there will be a day when he sits on a throne on earth. So we already have the establishment of the kingdom, so it is both already, it's begun, but the, the peak occurs when Jesus Christ returns. Amen? So we have this, this idea of the already and the not yet, the kingdom of God that has come and that will be established. And so we, when we look at, at, at all of this, all of this as we... Look at Matthew 24. We've got, to, we've got to widen our lens a bit and realize there's pattern. There's pattern of kingdoms of men are falling. The kingdom of God is rising. Amen? Is the kingdom of God greater today or lesser? Well, there's at least more people in it, right? Is it growing? Yes. Do you know that some people say that China is going to overtake the United States, which makes me a little sad, <coughs> for the number of Christians per capita? And, and, and um, I don't know the time frame that they're talking about, but there's so much church growth in China compared to the decline that's happening in the United States that, that there's a possibility we may find ourselves with Chinese missionaries coming to the United States to help us out. So there are places where, right, the church is growing, and there are places, other places that are struggling. We're struggling in the West. <clears throat> but the, the kingdom is progressing. And we're longing for our king. Anybody want to see the king? Oh. <laughs> Today be great. Right? We're... We are longing for our king. So I want us to understand maybe the distinction between pattern and seeing prophetic patterns, which usually point to judgment. Revelation chapter 6, four horsemen of the apocalypse. First one, don't be deceived. We're going to read that in Matthew 24, right? The first one is the, the white horse, deception. <clears throat> the second one, the red horse, is war. 
that you'll hear of wars, rumors of war. These are not the signs of the end, right? They're not the signs of the end. He says the end's not yet. Then what follows war is always famine and pestilence, death. <coughs> so you see this pattern laid out. And if you'll take the time to study the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that pattern repeated over and over again when God is bringing judgment. Did God judge the nation of Israel? He did. Well, multiple times, right, in, in the Old Testament. And at least one other time in A.D. 70. What Jesus spoke happened. And the Christians escaped. Those who were, and who were they, by the way? Who were the Christians who escaped? We have this tendency to make divisions that aren't there. The Christians who escaped, who escaped were Jews, which is what you and I would call a remnant, right, from the nation of Israel. Every judgment that ever happened on the nation of Israel, did God save a remnant? So we want to see the same things, the same things here. So Jesus has shocked all the disciples. <clears throat> We're going to make it all the way to verse 3, I promise. Jesus has shocked all the disciples. Look, not one stone's going to be left upon another. Not one. In John chapter 2, you have a visitation, Jesus visiting the temple and cleansing the temple. Now, either John is writing out of, out of order, which is possible by John because John doesn't believe in chronology, okay? So this may be an earlier cleansing that happens in John chapter 2. Jesus goes, cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers, John chapter 2. Uh, you guys can read it. But Jesus says something in that cleansing that's important. He said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And I can't read that the same way anymore. Because when Jesus leaves the temple, the temple is <clears throat> empty of his glory, but they're going to crucify him, and in three days, he's going to rise from the dead, and he is the temple. The body of Christ is the temple of God, right? What did Paul declare? Do you not know? Come on, you guys quote this to me all the time when you're, <clears throat> you want to call me and tell me I'm getting too fat. Jack, you're getting too fat. Don't you know that your body is the? Right? Is that true or not true? Is your body the temple of God? Okay. Is the body of Christ corporately the temple of God? In three days did Jesus raise up a new temple. Is that not mind-blowing for you? That he cleansed the temple and then he proclaims judgment on that temple and then that temple will be destroyed in... 40 years within that generation. And then he raises up a temple for the remnant. Yes. <coughs> so 
you have this beautiful picture. In Matthew 26, we'll read about this. Verse 60, it says, now they're looking for witnesses against Jesus. And they, they found many false witnesses that came forward. And at last, two come forward. And one man said, he said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they knew he said that, right? Matthew 27, verse 40, on the cross, they said to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. In the synoptic gospels, you have, this is in every one of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark 13, 1 and 2 says, Now as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said, Here are all the wonderful stones. What a wonderful building. And Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left on them one stone upon another. If you come with us to Israel, we're going to go to the Teropian Valley, just outside of the Temple Mount, and you will see all the great stones of the temple still laying in a heap. Literally fulfilled. Luke, Luke gives us uh, the, the most insight of the synoptics. Look at Luke 19, 43. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you on every side and hem you in. And they will tear you to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon because you did not know the time of your visitation. Luke 21, 5, And as they were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another, but all will be thrown down. So this event was important enough that all three of the synoptic gospels put it in, right? Nobody skipped it. They all, some gave more uh, (coughs) um, details than others, but it's in them all. The temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus prophesied the temple is going to be, what's the test of a prophet? What they say happens, right? Deuteronomy 18 gives us that test. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is the Moses prophesying of the coming of Messiah. From your brethren. So Messiah will be a Jew. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said... In the voice of the Lord my God, or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. The people didn't want to hear God's voice themselves. So the Lord said, They're right, I will raise up for them a prophet. So you see, when God the Father speaks, nobody wants to be there, especially without an advocate. Right? When I meet God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. You're not going to say not a word. 
When you meet God, all you're going to see is the soil. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. Now, all prophets, Jesus, all prophets, the Lord did this too, but specifically speaking of Messiah, what does the Bible say in the Gospel of John? <clears throat> what does it tell us in the other Gospels? I only say the things my Father has given me to say, right? Did Jesus speak the Father's words? Absolutely he did. For he is the Word of God. Mind-altering, if we really understand the concept. He will speak them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to the words, my words that he will speak, I will require it of him. If you won't listen to him, I will require it of you. There is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is only one way to the Father. There's a reason why the word of God declares that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved because he is the route <coughs> to all salvation. So if you reject him, well, Jesus told a, a parable just a couple of weeks ago. You remember the vineyard? And he said, what do you think the vineyard owner is going to do since you killed his son and you killed all his servants? And what's he going to do? What does he do? He's going to require of them, right? This prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how can we know the difference when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord <coughs> if the word does not come to pass or come true? That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. I don't think it's a little thing when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And I don't think it's a little thing that the temple is being destroyed. If you read the book of Hebrews, what's the whole book of Hebrews talking about? Hey, you guys who are trying to fall back into a failed old covenant system, that's passing away. You know, the book of Hebrews is written before that occurred, but there was a day when the temple was gone and that was over. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he took the cup and he took the bread and he said, this is the new covenant because the old covenant is doing what? It's passing away. The thing everybody's been looking forward to, it's dawned, it's come. And we don't want to miss <coughs> how the scripture describes that. So look, I made it to verse 3, I'm going to close now. <laughs> so as he sat on the Mount of Olives, yeah, sorry, Danae, yeah, she's not here, kid. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, when will these things be? What will be the sign? There's two questions, three parts. You see them, right? <clears throat> when will these things be? What will be the sign? Those are questions. 
And then they declare, what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, for next time, I want you guys to meditate on that question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of your age? In the end of the age, what is it the disciples are asking? Because that's important, right? If we want to understand the answer, what are they asking? Not what do we always think they're asking. Maybe we're right. But I want you to come to the text and say, what are they asking? When, is, when will be the sign of your coming? In light of all the stuff we talked, <coughs> my voice is just tired. In light of all the things we've been talking about, the destruction of the temple is certainly part of this. Do we agree? I hope we agree because there's no way to get away from that one. So we have the destruction of the temple. That's real. But what do the disciples mean when they say what? will be the sign of your coming. And what do they mean by what will be the sign of the end of the age? Think about that. Meditate on it, because we're going to talk about it next week as we go through. We'll get to verse 14 next time. I promise. Nah, I should not make promises. But I'm pretty sure that we're going to make it. So we want to kind of meditate on those questions, okay? So we covered a lot of stuff, <clears throat> talked about a lot of things. People ask me all the time, Jackie, come on, when are you going to do some prophecy? Well, when I do prophecy, people go, what did he just say? <clears throat> so, but I want us to understand it. I don't want to just give you a spoon and say, here's what Jackie says, and you just take the spoon. Last time somebody did that, there was poison in the cup. Have some Kool-Aid. Right? Let's be good students of the word. And part of the thing, part of the connection to being a good student of the word is to do the one-year Bible. Because... You have no business speaking on the 66th book if you don't know the other 65. And the only way you can know the other 65 is to have read them. And you need to read them often. So I would strongly encourage everyone to take advantage of the one-year Bible. The program, the concept of reading our Bibles every year is vital. If you want to understand, people tell me all the time, Jackie, it was nice, you know, you were semi-entertained, but I don't understand anything you're saying. (laughs) Read your Bibles. (coughs) That will help at least a little bit. And then come to Monday morning with the pastor, and I will try to explain it more better. So in, in in your effort to read your Bibles every day, we have an app. Uh, on our Calvary Chapel Buell app that has the daily reading in it every every day. You just click on it and you can read it or you can click on it and you can listen to it. So <clears throat> utilize those things that are, that are there before you. And then the last thing I'm going to pray, um, please do the challenge. Because part of starting and finishing, 
How many people started the the one-year Bible last? Come on. How many finished? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? (laughs) So... So for those of us who didn't, who maybe started and didn't, having a little accountability where we're thinking about it and realizing there's always the time you can catch up. It's not, it's not the end of the world. You can do it. You can do it. You can master the scriptures, but you cannot master them if you don't read them. And there's not a shortcut. <coughs> You cannot master the scriptures by going to YouTube. I know nowadays we can all go to YouTube and learn how to fix our car, fix a lawnmower, but really, you don't know how to do it. You're just following what somebody else did. And when it comes to the Word of God, you probably ought to have more invested in it than just hoping the guy you're listening to is okay. Right? Me too. Look, we want to read the word. So I want to leave you with those challenges. You remember the first one? How did 12 guys turn the world upside down and 2.2 billion aren't? And what, is, what did the disciples mean by these questions? What do they mean? What are they asking in light of all their time with Christ through the first 23 chapters of Matthew? <coughs> what are their questions? Not what do you think they mean by the coming. What did they mean? Okay? And then we'll talk about it next week and see if we're on the same page. Amen? Amen. Welcome to the new year and the beginning of prophecy for the next several weeks. Uh, Hopefully it will get more exciting for you as we go on. But all things that are good and valuable in our relationship with God are going to cost us time with him. If you want to know you got to be willing to spend time with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Thank you for this new year, for what you're doing and how you're moving and the challenges that you've laid out before us today. So God, give us the strength to meet the challenge, to meet this new year as victors in Christ, as more than conquerors, not as somehow we've been defeated, for we haven't been defeated Our Savior rose again. He sits on the throne. All authority is his. So may we move forward as men and women who are victorious in a world that is rebellious against the message. That's okay. We're not afraid. And we're not dismayed. And we're not crushed and defeated. So, Lord, remind us of these truths as we study your word. And may you be glorified as we move forward in victory this year. And may you grant us revival, repentance in the land, victory over our enemies, um, victory over a culture that has abandoned Christ. And so the culture is just an outward reflection of an inward belief. And it shows us that (coughs) there's been a shift. So amazing to me that 12 men never fired a shot, never had, never were the, the, 
went out with the purpose of making a riot. They just spoke the truth of Christ in the public square and God changed hearts of men. So Lord, challenge us this year to be obedient to what you're asking of us. And we look forward to that day when we will see your face, when we will recognize the coming of our King in truth, in victory, in power. God be glorified. Lord be magnified in this year and in my life every day of this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have opportunity for prayer. So if there's anybody here sick, you need prayer, there's something that we can help you with. There'll be elders and deacons and guys around the sanctuary to pray with you. God bless you. Happy New Year. Be blessed.